the Jericho Network on Westwood One. Welcome to One on One with Mitch LaPon and joining me on this episode, it is authors Brad Talinsky and Alan DePerna. Their new book is called Play It Loud, an epic history of the style, sound, and revolution of the electric guitar with a forward by Carlos Santana. Before checking out my interview with them, please check me out on Twitter at Mitch LaFon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. And you can also head over to TalkingMetal.com for all my interviews. So now here they are, the one, the only, Brad Talinsky and Alan we are speaking with the authors of Play It Loud, an epic history of style, sound, and the revolution of the electric guitar. Uh, authors Brad Talinsky and Alan DePerna. Let me start with you, Brad. Pleasure to have you here. Um, nice talking to you. Well, well, thanks for having us on, Mitch. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to be here. Yeah, and I'm very much looking forward to, to hearing about this book and about everything going on. And Alan, a great pleasure to have you as well. Oh, thanks, Mitch. It's very good to be here. So let's start off with the sort of the softball questions here. Well, what was the concept that you both had of putting together this book? And, you know, does it just come from a great passion? Um, so what was the, the, the reason to tell this story? Let's, let's start with you, Brad. Well, Alan and I had been working uh, in the sort of niche uh, vein of guitar journalism for probably like the last three decades. And what was really interesting to both of us was that when we were looking around for books or whenever we would get books about the guitar, they'd either be really super nerdy, like, you know, how to build a pickup or how to, you know, what kind of screws go into a guitar, or they'd be, you know, really these sort of general, you know, beautiful coffee table books with just pictures of guitars. And nothing really ever seemed to get at the history or the cultural significance of the guitar, which has become, you know, such an, such an icon in, uh, you know, worldwide, it's sort of like the automobile. And we both realized that there was this, you know, there's sort of this gap for the really cool you know, story of, of how this instrument came to be so popular and, and, and why it, why it holds such interest, uh, for, for people, for players and, and listeners alike. Yeah. And, and so, so talk to me, Alan, about your, uh, attraction to, to getting, or, or your, uh, reason for wanting to be in part of this project. Uh, well, you know, in a way it's, 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 it's the realization of, uh, what brought Brad and I together uh, really 25 years ago? Uh, I don't know if you remember, Brad, but you introduced yourself to me at a, at a trade convention, at a, at a NAM show, which is a convention for musical instruments. And I, I'd been writing, you know, maybe for like nine or 10 years by that time. And I'd, I had really been trying to do something different and innovative. I, I thought that writing about not only guitars, but all musical instruments was, as Brad said, you know, sort of dull, more of a chore to read, more like if you're a guitar player, it's your duty to read this stuff. You know, it's not something you're going to curl up in bed with and, and, and really enjoy yourself. And I was I was looking for ways to break through that. I had been writing for Musician Magazine, a few others, and Brad came up to me and uh, said, hey, you know, I, I really like your work. I'd like for us to work together. He, shortly after that, became the editor-in-chief of Guitar World, and we were united in this common cause. It was like, how can we make this stuff more interesting? How can we 
how can we bring it to life? How I always say, while I'm interested in the guitar, I'm much more interested in the people who play the guitar uh, and the people who make guitars. So um, all throughout our, our, our years together at, at Guitar World, we were always looking for ways to, uh, to innovate, uh, to bring a new level of professionalism to the field. And, uh, and, and to entertain. <laughs> so, and, okay. and, yeah. And, you know, pay, pay the rent. And, and uh, so basically, you know, two years ago or so, we found ourselves in a position where we had both interviewed many of the legendary players and makers. And, uh, you know, uh, Brad kind of suggested, hey, maybe it's time for us to pool our resources, pool our, our, our collective intellectual wealth and, you know, come up with this definitive cultural history of, of the electric guitar. Yeah, and it really is a, a wonderful book. But okay, so so let's then let's start talking about some of the inventions and some of the players and not some of all of this. Um, Nita Strauss, who's in Alice Cooper's band, is going to be part of She Rocks Volume One, which also includes Lita Ford and and um, Orianti and all that. Uh, Brad, you're going to be involved in that project. Uh, first of all, since we're talking about the history of rock and the history of rock guitar. Do you think that women in rock have gotten a fair shake? And if not, why do you think they've sort of become, always been sort of second? Why is there not a guitar hero like an Eddie Van Halen or a Jimi Hendrix that is female? Well, I think the uh, sort of the, the beginnings of, of guitar and, and, and making the electric guitar was always sort of a, a boys club, you know, started in the 40s and the 50s when times were very different and uh you know the guys went to work and the women stayed home and i think it just sort of stayed in that kind of place it's always been a bit of a boys club and maybe it has to do with you know sort of the rough and tumble world of of touring and the music business in general that it stayed somewhat of a boys club um and, you know, I've talked to many women that have said that they've gone into the music stores uh, and, you know, never really receive any respect. They find they find the environment sort of intimidating. So there have been a lot of reasons over the years, maybe why women have been marginalized in this area. But over the last, I don't know, I guess maybe 10 years, you know, I just see attitudes changing. Um, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and when I go to clubs these days, it always seems that bands are half guys and half girls. Whatever those inhibitions were, they've seemed to have completely opened up, and a, and a lot of women right now are engaging with the instrument in a super creative way. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Steve Vai, who's uh, label Favored Nations, came to me and said, you know, we'd like you to produce a record. And what would you do? And I said, well, you know, it's uh, there's there's a wealth of incredibly incredibly creative women out there that are doing amazing work and and need to be spotlighted more. So we decided to put a compilation record out uh, of these women. Yeah, and, and I'm looking forward to that. Did did the media have any part in, in that? Uh, you know, looking back on the dated Guitar World and Revolver feature enough. Um, of the players, or was it just there wasn't any to be featured, even if we had wanted to? Um, I, I think uh, I think the latter is true. Right. You know, um, it wasn't like there was any policy to keep women out. I right, mean, and there have been. We have sort of 
featured them uh, through the years. You know, Lita Ford or Vixen back in the hair metal days. Uh, and, uh, you know, all through the alternative rock sort of thing, you know, Sonic Youth or L7 or, uh, you know, Hole um, and even now uh, St. Vincent. But it is it, it just has been a uh, a minority. And and and, you know, the other thing was we weren't going to, you know, go in the opposite direction, just feature a woman just because she was a woman. If, if we didn't feel, you know, the playing was up to snuff, just like the way we, we would treat men. Yeah. And that seems reasonable. Uh, Alan, looking at some, and I'll and I'll move on from the the women question in a second. But Alan, looking back at some of the great women players, who who are the ones that stand out? I mean, we always go, well, Eddie Van Halen and and Jimi Hendrix and Carlos Santana. But if you had to look at Jennifer Batten and and Orientian, who are the ones that stand out and go, yeah, that's that's the real deal right there. Oh uh, well, I, I should I should preface my answer by saying that my very first piece for Guitar World was a piece on three three women players: uh, Jan Kuhnemann from Vixen, Lita Ford. There you go. There you go. And, now we're talking. And Jennifer Batten, you know, who yeah. who were all you know who were all really leaders in their field at the time. And uh, I think I began the piece by making an analogy to the to, to the Elizabethan theater in Shakespeare's time. Women were not even permitted to perform, to act on the stage. Uh, female roles were played by boys or men in those days. So, you know, we've certainly come a long way in that regard. Outstanding players for me, as, as a teenager, I always admired people like Memphis Minnie, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Elizabeth Cotton, uh, pioneering players. I'm, I'm an upside down left-handed guitarist. So uh, when I first saw Libba Cotton, uh, I really flipped like, hey, wow, you know, there, there's a way to do this. And in today's world, I really did really admire the work that St. Vincent is doing. Uh, I'm not much of a shred guy. I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's, you know, that's more Brad's department. So I know a lot of astounding work is being done there and I can certainly respect the, uh, uh, you know, the technique and, and the uh, mastery and the dedication involved. But I'm, I'm more excited by someone like St. Vincent, who is a, a graduate of, you know, Annie Clark, who's a graduate of, of the Berkeley School of Music and, you know, everything in a resume leads you to expect, you know, it's going to be four hour long solos of progressive fusion. But but her music is anything but it's it's uh, very accessible. It's very inventive, very avant garde. So uh, and 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 I'm I'm encouraged by the great diversity of uh, styles in, in in current guitar playing, you know, both genders. I don't I, I don't really see a need to genderize this right. field, but there's, no, you know. Agree. Yeah, yeah, but there's but there's someone like there's someone like Gemma Thompson in 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 the Savages, uh, English in the Anglo French group, really beautiful, uh, beautiful tone, beautiful lines. You know, she has a wonderful way of complimenting the lead singer. Uh, all across the board, I think that there's a lot of innovative work being done currently in the electric guitar. There really is. Um... And just uh, just to mention, I'm, I'm hearing all kinds of background noise going on, which which ends up on the uh, on the audio. So we just sort of have to be careful with with that, if that's okay. Um, let's let's look at some of the inventions that uh, the guitar went through over the years. Uh, one in particular, because you know I I am a hard rock, heavy metal guy. I like that kind of stuff. Uh, Floyd Rose. 
How important was the Floyd Rose uh, locking tremolo to uh, the advancement of guitar and guitar technique? And we'll start with Brad. Um, well, you know, for, uh, <clears throat> for a particular era of players, you know, um, it, it, it became an incredibly important thing. Um, as soon as Ed Van Halen started uh, doing more and more uh, different techniques using the whammy bar, uh, you know, he, he was trying to do a bunch of things and, and, and it just hit a, a ceiling because every time he would go there, his guitar would go out of tune. So the Floyd almost became a necessity for him to really explore the guitar in the way that, that he did. And, uh, then you had, uh, people who sort of jumped on that bandwagon, like Steve Vai and, and Joe Satriani. And that whole sort of shredder school, uh, they ended up building sounds and techniques just around the idea of a locking tremolo. So for, uh, you know, it's still being used these days, but I would say, you know, for the 80s, it was uh, a, a, a crucial invention. What is sort of the most in your opinion, the, the most important innovation to the electric guitar. Alan? Yeah, uh, well, there were, you know, there were, there were so many. Uh, we wouldn't have anything at all without the electromagnetic takeoff, that, you know, that was, that was really first, first perfected by George Beecham back in the late 1920s and early 30s. People, people didn't know what to amplify. They knew they wanted the instrument to be louder. Uh, traditional acoustic guitar making wisdom said that the top of the guitar, because it vibrates, that's the source of the sound. So people were trying to put microphones on that and all kinds of stuff. They were trying the bridge, but it was Beecham who figured out that no, the string is the thing. The, the, the most pure and direct source of vibration sound vibration is is the guitar string and if you have a steel string you can you, uh, you can use it to uh, interact with the magnetic field uh, fluctuations in the magnetic field change that into uh, an electrical current and bingo you you've got the electric guitar if if that hadn't happened uh, and there were and there were prior attempts that that didn't employ that principle if that didn't happen, we'd all be playing clarinets and trumpets now. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting, right, to, to hear a, a Jimi Hendrix solo done by clarinet? Brad, do, do you share that opinion, <laughs> that that's sort of the, the important uh, development, or is there something uh, more, more recent that you think has changed the way the electric guitar is, is used? Well, the, the pickup is the foundation of it all. Um, uh, and... You know, even something like the quarter-inch jack, you know, that you, you plug into the guitar with it, everybody takes um, takes for granted these days. Uh, that was far from a standard thing in, a, in you know, in the beginning of the guitar. Um, early models had, like, bare wires and, you know, uh, patch cords that were wired into the guitar itself. So just the, the, the simple jack, I mean, that that became like a, a super practical kind of thing that, that, that had to come around. What, in your opinion, makes a great guitarist? You look at somebody like Angus Young or maybe Ace Fraley, who aren't maybe the most technically proficient, but they play for the song. And if you took, you know, Steve Vai and stuck him in the middle of Kiss, it probably wouldn't sound right. Or is it a guy like Steve Vai or Ingve Momsen that can sort of play a million notes? Or is it somebody that's more feel-oriented, like Stevie Ray Vaughan or Carlos Santana? What's the, what's the most important thing to be a great guitarist, in your opinion? 
Well, I think it, I think it comes down to one simple word, soul, right. and, and an ability to connect emotionally with the listener. Uh, and, and I think that that, I think that you find that in all levels of playing. I mean, that's why Angus or Keith Richards are so compelling. Keith's solo in Sympathy for the Devil is one of the greatest guitar solos ever. I think many, many people would agree, but yet, you know, uh, not that hard to play, you know, not that hard to reproduce, uh, the notes at least, uh, the subtleties of tonality and expression are, are, are something else. And I think even the greatest shredders, I mean, what I value about Satriani and Bai in particular is that although there's, you know, you, you know, there's a, you know, there's a dazzling amount of, uh, technical proficiency going on there these guys are rocking they are they are you know you know they're connecting they're they're saying something with the instrument frank zappa is another cardinal example of that you know really 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 a monster of a player but yet uh, the, although his stuff was avant-garde and etc etc when he plays a solo you feel it you feel it in your heart you feel it in your soul and that's that's the acid test yeah that really is yeah i i think that this it, it's sort of interesting like how you move, how your fingertips connect with the strings of the guitar—it's almost like, it's almost like a fingerprint. I mean, it's very difficult for one person to sound like another person, um, and it's it it, it 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 gets down to that very basic thing—the connection between the fingers on the strings and the art of of moving them in certain ways to produce a certain sound. You know, people pick up on that. That's where the artistry comes in. And, and for everybody, it's completely different, you know, yeah, it really and is. unique. Um, let, me, let me take you, again, I'm a, I'm a rock guy. So let's look at the 1990s. Uh, grunge came into to, to great fashion and, you know, the hair metal days were all over. But most of their songs had no guitar solos. They decided that we didn't need that for the song. Um, what is your take on that? Was that a mistake? And you know, do songs really need guitar solos? Like, why do you think they sort of pushed it to the to the background? Well, I think. Go ahead, Brad. Go ahead, Alan. Oh, okay. Well, I think what had happened was that the level of virtuosity in the '80s um, took over guitar playing, and it was intimidating to to uh, any new player to even pick up the instrument to think that you had to play like Eddie Van Halen or Yngwie Malmsteen at that high technical level. And I think what grunge did was a super healthy thing for the guitar, which was, you know, create songs. Somebody like Kurt Cobain created songs that anybody could play. It was more of a punk rock aesthetic. And that really encouraged, I think, kids all over the place to really feel confident that they could you know, pick up an instrument and play music and it's in it and it and it revived the guitar in a certain way. But it's also a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, you did have great soloists in the grunge era. You just they just approached it from a little different way. Like Kim Thale of Soundgarden um, was uh, pretty phenomenal, uh, you know, on on every level. And uh you know, Vernon Reed, even, you know, Living Color, all that stuff. You yeah. know, there was a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah. True, though, though it wasn't, uh, I guess it wasn't uh, framed in the song in the same sort of context as, as it had been all through the 80s and even the 70s, you know. 
Um, Alan, what do you, what was your take on that? Uh, well, I, I would basically agree with Brad. Uh, a guy like Mike McCready in in Pearl Jam, he, 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 there was a, there were, there was room for guitar solos and within grunge music. Uh, but uh, I think it's just a matter of uh, the song is king. Uh, no matter what no matter what musical genre you're dealing with, it, it's always all about the song. And 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 if you write songs and if you you know and if you and if you play in a band. Sooner or later, you realize that the song tells you, you know, you're not the boss. The song is. The song tells you what it needs. Some songs need a guitar solo. Some songs don't. It all depends on how verses, choruses, bridge, bridges, intros, pre-choruses all line up. Uh, certain, you know, certain songs don't, don't, don't necessarily call for that. I mean, you know, there are, there are a lot of great organ solos in rock. Certain songs call for different sorts of things uh, right. uh you know california dreaming by the mamas and papas all right it's not a rock song it's a pop song but it, it's it's got a goddamn flute solo and, it, and it's beautiful it's, and it's perfect for that song if you try to put a flute solo in a van halen song well hey it ain't gonna work so <laughs> it's not I, gonna fly as great yeah no it's true um <laughs> i know we've reached 20 minutes but if you have a couple more minutes i had a just some of the some of the names in rock uh, great guitarists that i just would like to run by you if possible um is that okay Sure, sure. So let's start, uh, and I'll sort of pick them a little bit randomly, but let's start off with one of the names that comes up over and over again, just for the historical significance. Um, Robert Johnson, um, what did he bring to the playing and, and to, uh, you know, to, to the forefront with his style? Brad? Well, you know, the, the, the thing that, uh, that Robert Johnson, he was one of the first guys to do it that, that almost any player can relate to. I mean, Robert did a lot of cool things, but one of the things that he really brought into play was that. Thing in the blues, you know, he was really one of the first guys to do that. And he was sort of imitating, um, you know, a piano boogie thing on, on the guitar, but uh, he was an incredible player. But he also helped create the mythology of the guitar, and maybe that that was just as important. The idea of of selling your soul to the devil to learn how to play the instrument or to be great at the instrument, you know, that's a great sort of mythic thing that you know added added sort of sex and mystique to the guitar, and and sort of got its way into the blues and rock and roll. Yeah, I agree. Um... Ace Fraley of Kiss, uh, you know, often imitated, not not often duplicated. Many people will say that it's it's very sloppy and it's very this and that, and yet you can't really do what he does if you don't have his fingers. Um, what's what's your take on Ace? I'm gonna let Brad take that one too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they you know what they say is that. You know, it's in a certain way, the instrument doesn't lie, you know. Um, and I think that if you ever met Ace, and I've, I've talked to Ace on a number of occasions, um, you know, the guy is totally has this really skewed way of looking at the world. And um, he's, he's uh, you know, much smarter and, and much more creative than, than maybe what people might think, you know, because they call him the space ace. And I think that that sort of loopy, off kilter 
<laughs> personality that he has sort of translates into his playing. I mean, those crazy wide vibratos on the string, you know, the, you know, that's like Ace just staggering <laughs> across the stage. Um, like I said, the instrument doesn't lie. And that in his, his sort of personality, I think comes through and, and people enjoy that, you know, I mean, people like the life of the party and that's what, that's what Ace is. And he's he really, very, go ahead. He's, he's very funny as well. Yeah. And I think, I think that humor comes across a little bit. I, I, I remember him reducing me to stitches, telling me about a, a car, you know, there wasn't a, a, a serious car accident, so it wasn't a sad story, but he, he was he was in a car accident in L.A. on the 101, and, and his airbags deployed, and there's all this white powder all over the place, and he began to get paranoid because he thought it was cocaine, and he and he couldn't quite remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, and, and, and stuff like this, like, you know, like Brad says, stuff like this comes across in the playing somehow. I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's, uh, you know, look, you, everybody knows Paul and Gene are tight ass. So it's, it's really that Ace is the one that's bringing the rock and roll to the joint. You know, it really is. And, and it's funny because uh, and talking of your stories, I, I, I've interviewed Ace many times. And there was one time where we were talking and he stops and says, oh, hold on a second. And you hear sort of a cash register sound and stuff. And I go, what was that? He goes, oh, I, I'm at the mattress store. I, I'm buying a mattress and I had to pay for it. <laughs> and I was like, but, <laughs> but we're in the middle of an interview. Like, what are you doing anyway? So, so uh, you know, that's that. Um, one of the sort of, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, everybody had to be Jimi Hendrix. Everybody had to play like Jimi Hendrix. He was the guy. What's your take on, on Jimi Hendrix? Was he the guy? Has it grown into this myth uh, that that's beyond reality? Is he is he overrated? What did he bring? And and sort of what's your take on on Jimmy? Well, I think that uh, what was really unique about Hendrix is is uh, the way he synthesized so many different things. He was he was he was coming off the African American Chitlin circuit. He had he had really aced the R and B and blues thing. You can certainly hear a lot of Buddy Guy in his playing, but. He was also very hip to what was happening in in England in the mid '60s. Uh, he was he was he was a fan of Jeff Beck's works with the Yardbirds. One of the first things he wanted to do on arriving in in England was meet Pete Townsend. And and the first question to Pete is, what what kind of amps do you use? So so he was he was drafting in town. You know the use of feedback that Townsend had pioneered and 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 a certain aggressive style of playing. Uh, uh, windmills banging your guitar against the amp and all the, all, all the kind of sonic potential and dramatic stage potential that existed there. So he put together those two things with an ability to write songs that his, you know, that his manager, Chaz Chandler, helped him to cultivate with, you know, incredibly good looking guy, charismatic performer, great singer. So he, he was he was the first guitar hero who was sort of the total package. I think that where he's not overrated, but uh, there's a kind of naive appreciation of Hendrix on the part of people who may not be as aware of what Beck was doing in the Yardbirds. They may not have heard of Mike Bloomfield. 
They may not, you know, their their awareness of the who probably begins with Tommy in 1969. So they're not as aware of and 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 they may not know the blues that well, you know, the Chicago blues. So a lot of this like, wow, he must have been from outer space is actually uh, if you look at it. No, you can find all you can find all the sources and influences right here on planet Earth. But uh, no one put them together quite like Hendrix. Yeah, he really didn't. Um... I'll, I'll give you like three, three or four more names. BB uh, King. BB King. Well, BB. Yeah. Yeah, BB. Um, you know, he was the guy that sort of embodies this thing that we're talking about, which is, you know, your fingers on the string and having a, a distinct personality. I mean, BB is known, if nothing else, for his vibrato that he he applies to a lot of his notes. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful, expressive sounds in the history of music. And um, the other great thing about B.B. was, in addition to being uh, a great player, was he was one of the great ambassadors, you know, for the blues. He could operate, you know, in the, in the, in the blackest nightclubs and, and also meet, like, his white audience halfway, too. And I think in doing that, he really, really did a lot to to bring the blues to a wider audience but it's that it's that signature it's that um that vibrato that separates him from from his peers and and, you know that's one of the things i like in the book by the way is that you you have done all these interviews with a lot of these artists including steve Vai and stuff and you tell the story through their voice as well which is is quite fascinating um Brad, I'll ask you uh, this one, uh, and then you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll wrap it up. But uh, Randy Rhodes, um, unfortunately, we didn't get a lot of Randy on record. Um, right. You know, what do you think he did for the scene? Because you know, you know, Ozzy came out of Sabbath, and he needed this guy, and Randy was just absolutely what the doctor ordered. Right. Well, you know, it's sort of. Randy, in some ways, was almost a bit like what Alan was saying regarding Jimmy. You know, he he was a great synthesizer of, of different things that were in the air. I mean, you had guys like um, uh, Richie Blackmore and and Ingve, you know, expo- ex- um, exploring more sort of European sounding scales, more classical sounding scales. And then you had a guy out in California around the same time named Eddie Van Halen who were doing all these different techniques with uh, harmonics and tapping and, and, uh, you know, dive bombs with his whammy bar. And uh, Randy took sort of all those things that were floating in the air and brought them into a unique, uh, you know, into a unique sound. And I think, and rightly so, uh, you know, when you're playing heavy metal, you know, a lot of the early metal guys just used to sort of, bring in blues licks to everything or sort of soup up blues licks. And Randy was like, this music should be something that's different, distinctly different than, than the blues. And uh, I think he really sort of created the vocabulary of heavy metal that, you know, most guitar players adopted, uh, you know, from then on. I really think so. Um, Alan, I'll throw one at you here. Uh, Prince, you know, everybody talks about, uh, his stage presence and the songwriting and all the crazy stuff that he did. But at the at the end of the day, 
he was a phenomenal guitar player, right? Am, am I wrong in saying that? No, 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 you're absolutely right. He indeed was. Uh, I got in the 90s, I got to witness a, a show in Minneapolis that he did in his club, you know, so so like a small a small club setting for, you know, Prince and his band. And there's a lot of just amazing soloing. Uh, what what impressed me the most about him on that occasion and on many others is is sort of the the uh, breadth of his vocabulary he was he you know as, as as we're saying about all of these greats he was he was referencing a lot of different styles you know there was there was there was some really serious deep r&b roots in what he was playing but he, uh, there was a lot of just straight out rock playing uh reference the blues a little bit uh, so yeah he 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 incorporated this this whole vocabulary of of guitar playing into his unique songwriting vision in a in a way that's really, you know, that's really phenomenal and you know has you know I, I doubt if we'll ever see its its like again and uh, and it and, and again it it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier though every note he plays is in service of the songs that he wrote so uh, yeah yeah his confidence his confidence. It was always what sort of blew me away, <laughs> you know. I mean, whether it was an act or how he learned it, but you believed every no that he was in control of of literally every note that was going to come out of that instrument, and and he and he did the whole thing while you know running around and dancing and doing this and that, and and if anybody um, out there you know is, plays guitar or knows what it takes to play what he was playing, plus doing the stage moves that he was doing, you know that it required just hours and hours of, of dedication and practice. Yeah, and, and it, it's it's strange how he gets overlooked because there was just a, um, a finesse to what he was doing. Um, you know, listen, I could go on and on with, with all these great players from Stevie Ray Vaughan to Keith Richards to Slash to Carlos Santana. I mean, they're all, uh, and the forward to your book was, of course, by Carlos, so there's a lot of great information there. I will finish with this one then. Uh, one of my favorites, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, he, did he revolutionize guitar playing? Oh yeah, I mean Eddie changed. He changed everything. Um, you know what had happened, and and he did it in such a sort of interesting, naive kind of way. Uh, I'll try to make this tight, but you know um, what had happened during the mid '60s is that. Fender and Gibson, the quality of their instruments started to decline a bit. And Eddie, as a young young man, was sort of coming up and, and trying to find a guitar that he liked. And he just wasn't buying what these guys were selling. He He didn't know that the quality had gone down or anything like that. He just wasn't able to hear what he wanted to hear in his head. So he set about creating a guitar that would do everything that he wanted it to do. And in doing so, created a revolution. I mean, he um, made guitar players completely look at not only the technique of playing it, but how guitars were built in a totally different way. The importance of, of, of his contribution uh, you know, cannot be overlooked. I mean, it's often, often overshadowed by his tremendous playing. But what he did on a technical level by combining elements of Fender guitars with the elements of Gibson guitars with, um, you know, the Floyd Rose system, uh, you know, is been 
hugely influential for for the last three decades. Well, in fact, let me just quote straight from your book. You said, uh, in a mere minute 42, the solo guitar instrumental eruption changed the way the electric guitarist looked at the instrument forever. Did anybody else do that? I mean, was he sort of the only one that was able to just, in that moment in time, just change the the entire sort of history or the arc of guitar playing? I well, think, I think so. there have been a few. Okay. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Al. Well, I was I was gonna I was gonna cite Les Paul was you know the first guy who really uh, explored and pioneered this idea of a player who could who could and would also customize his instrument. Uh, you know you know the whole concept that uh, that the you know that the pickups the you know the the uh, vibrato arm whatever it is, is 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 can be customized to suit your style and in, in a way the hardware is an extension of your style. I would point to him. I would point to Pete Townsend, who uh, worked with Jim Marshall to create the first Marshall amp. I mean, rock, as we know it today, wouldn't be rock without the 100-watt Marshall amp. And that's, you know, that's the, the, uh, Pete didn't build it himself, but that was another instance of a, of a player who said, I'm not hearing what I want out of, out of, out of anything that's out there. Uh, act, actually, he, uh, he brought one of his fenders into Marshall and threw it down on the counter, and he said, I want this twice as loud. Uh, so, yeah, the, uh, there... The, the, you know, there have been a handful of players who, right. who, who, kind of, who, who kind of see customizing the instrument as, as, as part of their technique, if you will. Yeah, and, but, but of course, um, just in itself, though, eruption is one of those moments in time where you just go, ah, okay, now, now we're talking. Now we're at a different level, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember clearly hearing it when I, when I, was, uh, when I was a kid, and I... You know, this was a day. Bef this was, these were the days before the internet, or you know, the band had just come out, and I could literally not figure out how the heck this guy was doing it. I mean, you know, as soon as any guitar player heard that, he was on on you know on the hot foot to try to figure it out. And uh, I will say that by doing that kind of thing, by opening those doors, um, it wasn't just oh, Eddie's great. But he inspired a lot of other players just to look at the instrument in a completely different way. Yeah. Uh, he forced us to all become more creative. And that's really a great gift. Yeah, I agree. Uh, in terms of the future for both yourself and Alan, are we working on, on a second book about guitars? Are we, are we going to do a series where we talk about amps and drums and this and that? Or sort of this, is this, where, where, what's next for you? That would be telling. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, we, we do have a really cool idea for, for a follow-up to this guy. And uh, I, think it'll be, I think it'll be a bit different than everybody thinks. But, <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're in the midst of trying to convince our, our publisher now to, to do it. So <laughs> we have to keep it under lock and key. <laughs> but we, we do have an idea for a, a follow-up guitar book. We really, yeah, we uh, really like working together. We because we've been working together for so many years. There's almost this telepathic level of communication. I mean, you know, we have phone calls for hours, kind of tossing tossing concepts back and forth, refining ideas. So, yeah, we're always we're always thinking of the next move. That's great. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking with you, uh, Brad and Alan, and and the book, of course, "Play It Loud: An Epic History, Style, Sound, and Revolution of the Electric Guitar." 
uh, out now, definitely worth picking up. Uh, it is a fascina fascinating, fascinating read. And like you say, it's not just a collection of pictures of beautiful guitars. I mean, it actually tells a compelling story. And I think that was uh, truly lacking in sort of the the library of musicians to have a, a book like this. So um, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Mitch. Absolutely. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, I look forward to doing an, another one when the new book comes out. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I was going to tell you before, I was going to say before when we were talking about solos versus songs. Yeah. I, rem I remember uh, a moment of going, having to dig through a docking record because <laughs> I had to interview George Lynch. And all I did was fast forward through all the songs to get to the guitar solos because all of the songs were so terrible. <laughs> my 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 opinion. <laughs> That's my opinion. You may not share that being a headbanger, but oh my god, you know. Well, you know, listen, I I I I, I have an appreciation for Doc, and I, I'm I'm friends with uh, with Don. He he did some great oh. stuff for me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. You know, I'll tell you this. Uh, years ago, uh, 2013, my wife um, my wife's father passed away from prostate cancer, and he had been in a palliative care home. And I I did this tribute record called A World with Heroes, uh, and I yeah. phoned up a bunch of these people and. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Don and I said, could you? And he did a song, uh, Cold Gin. He donated the song. He donated his time. And, you know, Jeff Pilsen also. Um, so, oops. So, you know, the, the, they, they've been really, really nice and kind to me. And um, y you'll never hear me say a bad thing about anybody in Doc. And, and, and George, you got to love him, too. You know, you got you to gotta <laughs> love George. Is an, George is an incredible player, you yeah. know, and, and I always found his solos to be entertaining. But, but he, I just found Doc and songs to be a bit, but you, you know, know uh, by rote, you know that kind of thing. Sure, and that and that that's fair, and that's I think that's what makes music great. I mean, if we all, every one of us, liked the same ten Bjork songs, I think life would be uninteresting. So, <laughs> um, and very weird. <laughs> yeah, it would be. So it, it it's it's perfectly fine and normal and natural that we all like different stuff, and that's what makes things great. And that's, by the way, what makes guitaring great. Because I'm looking at a list of names I had picked out here, from Slash to mm -hmm. Keith Richards to David Gilmore to Chuck Berry to Brian May, they're not doing the same thing, and that's what's wonderful about the instrument because it really is just the same instrument, but it's different people, different interpretations, different soul, different emotion, and that's why uh. the guitar is just such. Uh, a, a fascinating instrument and why it's been so culturally significant for so long now, you know, and, yeah, uh, and yeah. your book certainly helps tell that story. So, uh, so, you know, great on you, as they say in Canada. Um, thank you. Thank you for your time <laughs> today, by the way. Okay. Oh. Thank you, Mitch. Have You're a good day. Well. Thank you. Bye-bye now. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Brad Talinsky and Alan DePerner. The new book is Play It Loud, an epic history of the style, sound, and revolution of the electric guitar. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Please check me out on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. And for all my interviews, head over to TalkingMetal.com. And with that, I bid you a fond farewell. Arrivederci, au revoir, auf Wiedersehen. Bye for now.